Hello and welcome back to Gimme Some Truth, the podcast that presents and highlights new research that helps to unravel fact from fiction in the Beatles' history. I'm Obadiah Jones. Today we are talking about probably the most famous myth in the Beatles story, the Paul is dead rumor. I am under no delusion that people believe this myth is true, and I know that, apart from maybe a few hardcore conspiracy theorists, most Beatles fans recognize it as a far-fetched Easter egg hunt with no basis in reality. I don't see how anyone could believe that a Paul McCartney lookalike brought in to cover up the original's death in 1966 could then have gone on to be the driving creative force in the Beatles for their remaining years and have a highly successful 50-plus-year solo career. This double also happened to have the original McCartney's insane vocal range, multi-instrumental prowess, and songwriting ability? Yeah, right. But when I started to dig into the 1969 origins of the rumor, I found an interesting story that I think is worth examining, if for no other reason than to show definitively that the whole thing, the conspiracy, the clues, the fake history, was all an imaginative fabrication. Number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine. The rumor began on the 17th of September, 1969, when 19-year-old Drake University student Tim Harper published a front-page article in his campus newspaper, the Drake Times Delphic, titled, Is Beatle Paul McCartney Dead? The article began... Lately on campus, there has been much conjecture on the present state of Beatle Paul McCartney. An amazing series of photos and lyrics on the group's albums point to a distinct possibility that McCartney may indeed be insane, freaked out, even dead. Harper then went on to list a variety of supposed clues that support this theory. From the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album artwork, Harper's clues included the raised, waving hand of actor-comedian Izzy Bon above Paul's head, a supposed ancient death symbol of Greek or American Indian origin, he's not sure, and the left-handed flower guitar on the front cover. Paul facing the wrong way around on the back cover, while George and the others supposedly point out key lyrics from Within You Without You and She's Leaving Home, which Harper mistakenly says is a day in the life, and Paul's black arm patch on his pepper suit. The sewn-on patch, which reads OPP for Ontario Provincial Police, was later claimed to spell out O-P-D for officially pronounced dead, but this detail was not in Harper's original article. When discussing the Magical Mystery Tour cover, Harper hilariously suggests that Paul, wearing the only black walrus costume while the others all wear grey walrus costumes, is another clue. This is ridiculous because A, it is John in the walrus costume, and B, Paul is in a hippo mask, George a march hare, and Ringo a parrot, The walrus is supposedly a Viking symbol of death. Harper also wondered why the liner notes mention four or five magicians, and hidden phone numbers appear only when the cover is seen through a mirror. Then he moved on to the Beatles' double album. With this record, he wrote, the whole mystery became even more spooky. On the tune Revolution No. 9, there is a part where a lone deep voice repeats, Number 9, 
When this is played backwards, a voice quotes, Turn me on, dead man, and cherish the dead. And there are many sound effects, including the noise of a spectacular auto crash. In another song on the record, Glass Onion, the Beatles sing, Here's another clue for you all, the walrus was Paul. So much for the clues, even though these are only a few of the many people are pointing at. There is a good deal of circumstantial evidence available. For instance, Paul used to be the most flamboyant of the foursome. Lately, Lennon has had the spotlight. Other circumstantial evidence Harper claims includes Paul's sudden marriage to Linda, who he twice calls Jane Eastman, and Paul's absence from the recent Isle of Wight festival attended by John, George, Ringo, and their wives. Harper wrapped up his piece by saying, We will probably not know the truth around this entire intrigue for some time. We may never know. Nevertheless, it is something to think about. It's all unclear just how the whole deal was originated, or who discovered it, but if it did originate recently or locally, we may find out soon. Editor's note. Any more information concerning this mystery is most welcome. Contact Tim Harper in the Times Delphic office. Whether it was written as a serious theory or a ruse, Harper's article started to spread among collegiate communities. Over the next couple weeks, a copy of it made its way to an Eastern Michigan University student named Tom. On Sunday, the 5th of October, Tom called into Detroit's WKNR-FM studio to ask DJ Uncle Russ Gibb if he had ever noticed the Turn Me On Dead Man message when Revolution 9 was reversed. Skeptically, Gibb tried it out on air, and the switchboard lit up as over a thousand listeners phoned in that afternoon to offer more clues. I didn't really believe it, Gibb told the Detroit Free Press two weeks later. It was like mass hysteria. I told that first kid, all right, I'll play your game, and then the thing just exploded. Realizing they had a hot topic, Russ Gibb and fellow station DJs Big John Small and Dan Carlisle teamed up on air the following day to string more clues together. The rumor spread like wildfire, and suddenly the Apple Press office in London was deluged with requests to know if there was any truth to these claims. As the idiom goes, where there's smoke, there's fire, and everyone wanted to know what was going on. No matter how absurd the whole thing was, press officer Derek Taylor relayed a statement from Paul to the press four days later. The statement simply said, I am alive and well. Of course, that's exactly what an imposter would say, so it did little to douse the flames. On the 14th of October, four days later, 21-year-old University of Michigan English major Fred Labor added to the confusion with an article he wrote for his school's Michigan Daily newspaper titled, McCartney Dead, New Evidence Brought to Light. His article was reprinted in at least a dozen other college papers, including the Harvard Crimson. Labor expanded and embellished Harper's original theories, adding considerable detail and supposed inside information, even claiming his sources, George's sister Louise Caldwell and producer George Martin's illegitimate daughter Marianne. Critically, Labor dated Paul's supposed demise to a car crash in November 1966, claimed that he had been replaced by a Scottish lookalike named William Campbell, and added clues from the Abbey Road LP cover. When Tim Harper wrote his article, Abbey Road had not been released yet. For Labor, the now-released album was fair game for new clues. The idea that the Beatles on the cover represent a funeral procession with Paul as the barefooted deceased comes directly from Labor's article. Labor later tried to say that his article was only a review of Abbey Road, not a news story, but this is obviously untrue. 
At the start of the original article, an editor note reads, Mr. Labor was originally assigned to review Abbey Road, the Beatles' latest album, for The Daily. While extensively researching Abbey Road's background, however, he chanced upon a startling string of coincidences which put him on the trail of something much more significant. Mr. Labor says it's all true. Detroit's WKNR was not the only U.S. radio station to pick up on this story. Many other stations helped to fuel the rumor by discussing it on air. One DJ, who firmly believed the rumor to be true, was New York WABC's Roby Young. Young went on the air in the early hours of 21st of October to espouse the myth. It is 22 before the hour of 1 o'clock WABC chime time. I just got a call from Georgia. Now, this doesn't mean a heck of a lot, except for the fact that the other night I got a call from Indiana. And the whole thing is about one thing. The fact that there is something very strange about the Beetle Paul. The fact that the Beetle Paul may be dead. In Indiana University, uh, for instance, at Bloomington, uh, there are 30 students working on a research project indicating that uh, the Beetle Paul might be dead. I talked to them last night for an hour and a half. As a DJ on the world's largest radio station, uh, I felt it uh, my you know business to listen to their uh, claims. And they told me some things which uh, shocked me. And I was up all night last night. And I promised myself that I would not say anything on WABC because I'm talking to 40 states right now. And there are a heck of a lot of people listening to this thing. And I'll surely get fired if I say anything unusual. But the fact is, folks, I've been fired anyhow. You will not hear my show after two weeks from now. It'll be off the air. And uh, I'm not going to be cut now because it's uh, 12, uh, 39 at night and there's nobody standing by to cut the switch. But I'm going to tell you the truth. These kids at Indiana University have mentioned something very strange about Paul. And I am going to give you the things that they have mentioned. And I hope that you will remember that I told you first because you're going to hear about this. This is making the wire services. This is making all the local radio newscasts across the country. And I know what they're talking about. And after 10 years in broadcasting, I have never felt so, so sure of a thing as I feel right now. But that there is something strange going on with the Beatles. And something particularly strange with reference to Paul. Why is he in a black suit with bare feet on the cover of Abbey Road? Do you know that's what they bury people in in England? For instance, in Revolution Number 9, you can hear the sound of flames. You can hear crackling, you can hear a car crash, you can hear distinctly, let me out. And the most shocking thing of all is, you can hear, turn me on, dead man, if you happen to play it backwards. Now, folks, I have nothing to lose by telling you this. I'm sorry for the telephone girl. There's only one girl on the switchboard tonight at ABC, and I feel sorry for her. But I had to say this, because my voice on ABC will be silenced within two weeks. But if you will listen to these songs... You will hear what I said. And if you listen to the rest of the songs, you will hear even more. WABC Chime Time and the WABC operator can't handle all the calls. There are hundreds of them coming in. Well, I say to that, good. I'm glad the WABC operator can't handle all the calls. Maybe there should be more than one WABC operator. Despite Young's confidence, he was shut down when program director Rick Sklar hauled Young out of the studio and drove him home. Sklar told him he was causing a national panic. This was Young's last ever broadcast on WABC. As he mentioned on air, Young had already been informed that when his contract with the station terminated at the end of the month, it was not going to be renewed. 
After his show was cut short that night, Young quit. But the message had already been disseminated to 40 American states through that one broadcast alone. The following day, the real Paul McCartney, his wife Linda, her daughter Heather, and their eight-week-old baby Mary, flew to Scotland to spend some downtime at High Park Farm near Campbelltown. Paul had a lot on his mind. Coming to terms with John's recent announcement about wanting a divorce from the Beatles, the loss of Northern songs to ATV, and fatherhood. The last thing he cared about was an outlandish and elaborate story about the cover-up of his three-year-old death. But if Paul thought he could escape the press on his remote Scottish farm, he underestimated their tenacity. The same day Paul and family flew to Scotland, John and Yoko were interviewed over the telephone by Big John Small for WKNR Detroit, the first station to pick up on the rumor. The interview was eventually about their latest work, but the first thing Big John asked Beatle John was for a comment on Paul's death. John Lennon, there is no doubt in your mind about the fate of uh, Paul McCartney. Uh, no, it's a joke, isn't it? I mean, Paul isn't dead. You know, and if he was, we would have told you. you know, we'd be the first to know. Well, that's it. Uh, he's always got a baby. He's recording music for Ringo's film and producing Mary Hopkins, so he's very much alive. Well, how did the rumors uh, affect both of you at this point? It's a joke to us. It's just a joke. It's so hard to uh, believe that something like this would be going on, uh, similar to uh, like a James Dean thing. I can't understand it because I can understand the James Dean kind of, he still lives, crippled, but won't come out, you know. I mean, there's some kind of idea you could guess, well, maybe, maybe. Yeah. But Paul McCartney couldn't die without the world knowing it. Mm-hmm. The same as he couldn't get married without the world knowing it. It's impossible. He can't go on holiday without the world knowing how. How could he die without everybody knowing it? Paul McCartney is in England now. Is he Is he at home or uh, is he on a holiday or what, John? He's not on holiday. He's working. He's, he's recording uh, a group called the Ivies for doing some background music for Ringo's film, The Magic Christian. Mm-hmm. And I want to be plugging my own stuff, not Paul. So come on, let's get going. The Detroit Free Press reported that Paul McCartney was also interviewed on WKNR before his flight this day at 10.15 a.m. Detroit time. 3.15 p.m. London time. The 30-minute transatlantic conversation was recorded, but Paul refused the station permission to broadcast it. Tell them Paul McCartney is alive and moaning in London, England, with a wife and family. I'm sorry to disappoint everyone, Paul told DJ Uncle Russ Gibb and news director Philip Nye. It's one big drag just having to deny it all, and I wish he would stop it. The whole thing has caused so many hassles already. Philip Nye, who had met Paul in person during his station's coverage of the Beatles' Detroit press conference in September 1964, confirmed that the voice on the phone sounded like Paul. That's about half an hour I've done for you, so I'll see you, Paul said at the end of the conversation, and hung up. In the following days, Ringo, Derek Taylor, Neil Aspinall, Paul's tailor Tommy Nutter, members of the Apple sign group White Trash, and even Paul's barber Leslie Cavendish were all interviewed at Apple by Alex Bennett for New York's WMCA radio. I guess it was tunes like this one and many others by the Beatles that kept floating through my head as I was living in a Beatle world for three days, traveling from place to place, talking to people who had something to do with the Beatles. Derek Taylor suggested I see Paul's barber. In fact, he's not just Paul's barber, he's barber for all the Beatles. He said that maybe he might be able to give me a clue as to whether the real Paul McCartney still lives or not. And indeed, he gave me the one clue, which you can see evident in most photographs. It has to do with the hairline. Let's listen to this interview with Leslie Cavendish. 
Emily Cavendish is Paul McCartney's barber. I guess we're going to extremes to try and, and find out uh, for the American public if the real Paul McCartney's like. What do you think of these rumors? I think they're ridiculous. Paul McCartney is alive and well. I saw him two weeks ago, and I cut his hair, and it's the same Paul McCartney I've been cutting for three and a half years. I guess you could tell the difference in hair from one person to another. I would think so, because if he was another person, Paul McCartney has, um, and when you comb his hair back, it naturally parts just off center. And if it was somebody else, it would, it was impossible to get the parting. And the parting is still there, and it's the same hair, and it's the same Paul McCartney. <laughs> And you've been cutting his hair since prior to Sergeant Pepper, haven't you? I've been cutting it for, for three years now. And uh, I think it's ridiculous. <laughs> I don't know what to say. You don't see any uh, scars from plastic surgery behind the ears? There's no scars. There's nothing. You know, it's Paul McCartney. There's no scars. He hasn't any plastic surgery. His hair's the same. Everything's the same. I can't, you know, I think it's a very funny story that's going on. During the McCartney's three-and-a-half-week break in Scotland, Paul admitted he went through a rough period of feeling redundant and self-medicating with alcohol. Paul would later document how Linda helped him get through this time in the most powerful song from his debut album, Maybe I'm Amazed. But I believe that Paul's so-called post-Beatle depression has been generally overstated by authors. For one thing... Paul was taking care of farm duties and sending numerous postcards to friends in London. Additionally, Paul was constantly having to deal with reporters showing up at his farm to find out for themselves if the death rumor was true. Among those who trekked to the Mull of Kintyre were Hugh Farmer for London's The People newspaper, BBC Radio 4's Chris Drake, a couple German reporters, and most significantly, Dorothy Bacon and photographer Terence Spencer for Life magazine. Paul's initial encounter with Bacon and Spencer ended poorly when he got annoyed at them for taking pictures and threw a bucket of kitchen scraps at them. Realizing that story would only make matters worse, Paul apologized and agreed to an interview which became the 7th of November cover story for Life, titled The Case of the Missing Beetle, Paul is Still With Us. This article more or less was the last word on the matter. The cover photo of Paul and family provided to the magazine by Linda shows Paul looking more like his 1964-65 self than he had since the end of 66. But here's the irony. Before the Life magazine interview had even been conducted, and in the middle of the chaos of the rumor, Tim Harper and Fred Labore, the two original college-level architects of the clues and the myth, both separately confessed to having made the whole thing up. In the 23rd of October issue of the Detroit Free Press, journalist Julie Morris managed to piece together many parts of how the rumor had begun. Fred Labore told her, I just made it up. It seemed like a funny story. I was amazed that some people took it absolutely at face value. The following day, the Indianapolis News published the headline, Killer of Beetle Confesses. The original mythmaker, Tim Harper, told reporter Jim Abrams that he started the rumor as a joke. Harper said he developed the hoax, citing lyrics from Beatles recordings and record jacket photos to back it up. What started as a joke conspiracy among college students was disproved as quickly as it had started. But the myth took on a life of its own. The fairly novel ability for students to record bits of songs and reverse them to search for secret messages, a practice known as backmasking, 
and the possibly substance-fueled imaginations of two students converged to this particular moment on university campuses in Iowa and Michigan. Paul McCartney, who was retreating into his new family life away from the public eye and the demands of Beatle duties, was caught in the crosshairs. Let it be. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to submit a question or topic for a future episode, or you have additional information about history presented in one of these episodes, you can write to me by email to gimmesometruthpod at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at gimmesometruthpod. I post episode artwork and other relevant visuals on these platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a future episode. See you next week.